Game Cool Books, Episode 31, Beyond Sleep and Waking. Welcome back. We arrived at the second to last chapter, and the shortest in the book, along with The Lost Boy, to which betrayal is thematically as well as structurally matched. In fact, perhaps because of the shortness of the chapter, the sheer density of moments which resonate between this and other parts of the book is astonishing. The cumulative effect is a kind of undertow, a nightmarish straining to move and yet feeling stuck in place. First, we have the title, Betrayal, which was planted back in the coda between the master and the librarian in chapter two. There have been other candidates for that betrayal the master spoke of. Lyra thought she'd betrayed Yorick by convincing Yofor to fight against him. And as Pullman himself, as well as other readers have pointed out, yet another terrible betrayal awaits Lyra on the shores of the world of the dead. However, we are clearly prepared for something dramatic here in chapter 22, and we don't have long to wait. Lyra's being awoken by a stranger, like her Sisyphean waking at Bolvanger after she was drugged, or like her resurrection from that brief hibernation beside the combat ground, is particularly jarring here, since she had been particularly exhausted by the end of her journey, and she longed for the peaceful rest promised by this quixotic house spilling light from its windows full of comfortable Jordan College furniture. The man with the lamp is Thorold, of course, but he resembles also that villager who brought Lyra a lantern before her encounter with the lost boy. Traditionally, such light bearers have been symbols of celestial bodies, the sun and the moon, comically represented in the play within the play in A Midsummer Night's Dream, or represented with a little more gravitas in the myths of Prometheus and Lucifer. And one other time, much earlier, Lyra was woken by a woman holding a candle over here, Mrs. Lonsdale. She considered the library lantern before the master gave her the alethiometer. To Thorold's credit, though, he's never argued with Lord Asriel's orders this time, he seeks out Lyra to ask what he should do next. It may not be the first time that he's carried out orders despite his misgivings. Knowing Lord Asriel, it would be almost impossible for that to be the case. But it seems to be the first time that he's tried to make it right. He's almost as bewildered as Lyra. It becomes clear what has happened. Roger had a foreboding of it, and perhaps we did too. But now Thorold spells it out for us. You know when you first came to the door, miss, and he saw you and couldn't believe his eyes and wanted you gone? Lyra's head was in such a whirl of weariness and fear that she could hardly think, but yes, yes, she said. It was because he needed a child to finish his experiment, miss. Lord Azrael has a way special to himself of bringing about what he wants. He just has to call for something, and 
Now Lyra's head was full of a roar as if she were trying to stifle some knowledge from her own consciousness. With the inevitability of Greek tragedy, with imagery reminiscent of the stunning finale of Joyce's Eveline, Lyra sees what she has done. Not that she willed it the way Lord Asriel did, though himself without full knowledge of the consequences of his call, but that by dint of her doing what she set out to do, rescuing Roger and bringing Lord Asriel the Elysiometer, this came about in its wake. Both mysterious powers here, Asriel's to call to make things happen, and Lyra's, she says, to be uttered by something bigger than her. Suddenly she collapsed and a fierce cry of despair enveloped her. She was uttering it, but it was bigger than she was. It felt as if the despair were uttering her, for she remembered his words. The energy that links body and demon is immensely powerful, and to bridge the gap between worlds needed a phenomenal burst of energy. She had just realized what she'd done. She'd struggled all this way to bring something to Lord Asriel, thinking she knew what he wanted, and it wasn't the alethiometer at all. What he wanted was a child. She had brought him Roger. They come together here, um, and they both serve as figurations of authorship. It's as if the narrator, too, is appalled by where his story has led him, and he wishes to share the blame along with his characters. Azriel's exact words in italics in the text run through Lyra's mind. That's something we have heard so much about. Her realization comes together uh, in her memory of Azriel's that the fates had brought him his own daughter. Or so he'd thought, until she'd stepped aside and shown him Roger. So her determination prevents the catastrophe that he feared on seeing her. So she thought she was saving Roger, but all along she was betraying him. Yet even Roger played his part in this. As we heard back in chapter 3, he would follow her to the ends of the earth, and just in the last chapter, he chose not to know what the future held in store for him. And the language of the fates here also recalls Serafina Pecola's discussion with Lee. But the situation is much less philosophical here. There's much more of the urgency of fairy tale. Lyra issues commands very like her father, the servant thinks and together they get her ready to go after him. And Pan, like back in Bolfanger, is all but lit up with his fur sparking. And once more, Lyra goes out to brave the cold, which strikes her like a sword, freezing her tears. And her calling of Yorick here, though so different from Azriel's calling, is built on reciprocal trust and is effective. And there's another inversion here. 
as she seeks comfort in Yorick's helmeted form. This time a reversal of that passage in Homer where Hector's son, Astyanax, is terrified of his father who's wearing his plumed helmet. Pullman cites that passage in his moving autobiographical sketch. It's difficult to find, but I've got a link to it from my blog page. And the context there is worth another look. Now, following the tracts, in a way, the whole time the path laid out for Lyra has been just as clear as it is here, drawing her north. And now, when she rides the bear, the balanced motion is automatic. There's a clarity about what she needs to do, and it transfigures the whole scene. The way was clear, for the moon was high, and the light it cast over the snowbound world was as bright as it had been in the balloon, a world of bright silver and profound black. The tracks of Lord Azriel's sledge ran straight toward a range of jagged hills, strange stark pointed shapes jutting up into a sky as black as the Elysiometer's velvet cloth. Along with this imagery of clarity, Pan, too, sees ahead with an owl's clear vision, just barely able to make out the feather touch of movement that is Lord Azrael's sledge. That likening of the dark sky to the alethiometer's velvet cloth places the characters in the alethiometer itself as if they are figures written on the white page of the snow. And soon the aurora itself becomes visible. The first hint is Lyra noticing that Yorick's attention is caught by something. Then she hears the rustling and crackling of the aurora, which she had heard before. I think it was on the deck of the ship back at Trollesund. Uh, where she also made the connection between dust moving the hands of the alethiometer and causing the aurora. And that music is also, of course, spoken of by Serafina Pecola. And dust's presence there, like the imaginary numbers in the calculation, changes the significance of this spectacle something which can be not only wondered at, as it was on the deck of the ship, but interacted with, as Lord Azriel seems to be controlling it. And the Aurora itself, for its part, its display this time is so brilliant that it seems as if it knows the drama going on and seeks to light it with the most awe-inspiring effects. So it too shares something of the narrator's sense for drama. That as if is always a critical phase or phrase in Pullman's mythos. It transcends rational explanation, yet incorporates the efforts of rationality and impels action in the world. And yet, it's not the aurora, after all. 
but something else which has got Yorick's attention. Lyra climbs down to let his senses roam freely while she continues to behold the curtains increasing, touching the zenith with bows of radiance. So curtains for a window or for a stage, bows for arrows or for bridges. Into this breaks the warning witches, which Lyra mistakes for a cheer. But Yorick sweeps her out of the way of the first arrow and shields her with his body from more raining down. Impossible, she thought weakly, but it was true. And, of course, we might have thought as much uh, we've heard already that Serafina Pecola and the others towing the balloon were ambushed by another clan. So, just one more danger that Lyra might have foreseen, but didn't. Her swearing, which has shocked scholars and impressed the able seaman Jerry, proves less effective here than the practiced formations of the bear defenders. They fend off arrows and snag witches as they swoop low to shoot. If these witches seem less formidable than they should, because surely they could aim well enough and still stay out of the bear's leaping reach, the ante is raised immediately with the approach of the zeppelin of Mrs. Coulter and her troops, which Lyra had foreseen only. Once again, Mrs. Coulter has arrived sooner and elsewhere than she was expected to. Um, at last, we get the fire hurler described and put into practiced action. A long arm extending upward at an angle, a cup or bowl a yard across, and a great iron tank wreathed in smoke and steam. As she watched, a bright flame gushed out, and a team of bears swung into practiced action. Two of them hauled the long arm of the fire thrower down, another scooped shovelfuls of fire into the bowl, and at an order they released it to hurl the flaming sulfur high into the dark sky. That burning sulfur launched upwards from the ground is a neat inversion of the biblical fire and brimstone that rains down in the cities of the plain. But it might owe more nearly to Milton's rebel angels. And at first it seems the pilot of the Zeppelin is either ignorant or underestimates the bearer's weaponry. But then it becomes clear that he's trusting to his own the machine gun. So quickly, what looked like ignorance shades over into arrogance. And as sturdy as the bears are, two fall under the coughing, spitting bullets. But they stand their ground, and the third time the fire hurler hits the gas bag at hundredweight, something even a bear's armor would not have protected him from. So the gas bag is surely no match. The silk ripped straight through, and sulfur and hydrogen leaped to meet each other in a catastrophe of flame. 
At once the silk became transparent. The entire skeleton of the zeppelin was visible, dark against an inferno of orange and red and yellow, hanging in the air for what seemed like an impossibly long time before drifting to the ground almost reluctantly. Little figures, black against the snow and the fire, came tottering or running from it, and witches flew down to help drag them away from the flames. Within a minute of the zeppelins hitting the ground, it was a mass of twisted metal, a pall of smoke, and a few scraps of fluttering fire. That lazy, slow-motion fall in the portrayal of the Zeppelin crew and soldiers as the victims here, needing to be helped by the witches, who Lyra thought impossible, pulling them to safety, all seems informed by images of the Hindenburg and the atrocities, horrors of war, more characteristic of the narrator's realism than a fantasy. Indeed, they proceed to fight the armored bears in earnest. Yorick remarks that they'll hold out for a long time, suggesting that they might not win this fight for all his confidence in their armor. So Yorick goes on and on, on, is her nerves screaming, echoing her yearning for warmth outside Lord Asriel's house. This time, it's pictures not of comfort, but of Roger and Lord Asriel. And these are like, and yet so unlike, to those fairy tale pictures she'd envisioned to herself back at Mrs. Coulter's, or the ones that she spun out in her anger at Lord Asriel during their conversation in his library. But that temporary clarity is fading. Pan's owl eyes can't see, unless possibly another feather touch of movement. The stark white and black has given way to the lurid colors of the aurora. Whatever happened behind now was simply that, behind. Lyra had left it. She felt she was leaving the world altogether, so remote and intent she was, so high they were climbing, so strange and uncanny was the light that bathed them. So that sulfur and that inferno she does not look back towards. She has that sense of a point of no return which will soon be made literal. And laying the groundwork for some of what will happen in the next book, Lyra does ask Yorick, since he'll stay behind, to find Lee Scoresby alive or dead, to tell Serafina Pecola the way the fates and tensions have played out. And then they spoke no more for some time. Lyra felt herself moving into a kind of trance beyond sleep and waking, a state of conscious dreaming almost, in which she was dreaming that she was being carried by bears to a city in the stars. That trance is both in form and content a kind of meditation on self-consciousness. It sounds like 
the state that she enters when she reads the alethiometer and the being carried by bears again represents one of her first instances of being aware of how she must look to others um, and before she does tell Yorick um, what she's been thinking about uh, the tracks go on, said Yorick Bernison, but I cannot. He was standing at the edge of a chasm. Whether it was a crevasse in the ice or a fissure in the rock was hard to say and made little difference in any case. All that matters was that it plunged downwards into unfathomable gloom. And the tracks of Lord Asriel's sledge ran to the brink and on across a bridge of compacted snow. It might support the weight of a child. It would certainly not stand under the weight of an armored bear. So, as Yorick recognizes his limitations and Lyra sees what that portends for her, we get a prefiguration of the abyss which will appear later and the separation on the brink of the world of the dead in this chasm. And it also recalls the way that Lyra and Yorick first became acquainted now that they have to say their goodbyes. That first time Pan pulled against her to reach Yorick and now he flies ahead to the end of the bridge to encourage her on. And this compacted snow cracked by Lord Azriel's passage and the tracks that go on beyond, being one she must cross by herself, clearly prefigures also the one that he intends to make between the worlds. Thought that some of the tearing of the Zeppelin's lining might be a distant echo of that same catastrophe. As she proceeds, she, uh, she wondered with every step whether it would be better to run swiftly and leap for the other side or go slowly as she was doing and tread as lightly as possible. In fact, it's her intuitive combination of both, going ahead as far as she can, treading lightly, until the way itself requires her to leap. And it's easy to read into this. Um, though it might seem strange, Pullman himself acknowledges the importance of a leap of faith. And in those passages where he's talking about acting as if it's implied there, and it's much more overt at the end of his rousing Republic of Heaven talk. And it's possible, and I think fascinating, to read in further that some part of Lyra, some leopard-formed part, has already made the crossing and is holding on to her as she lands on the far side. She landed 
belly down in the snow, as the entire length of the bridge fell into the crevasse with a soft whoosh behind her. Pantaliman's claws were in her furs, holding tight. So the chapter ends as it began, with Lyra opening her eyes, although having passed through a trance beyond sleep and waking, she uh, sees that there is no way back, and as she waves goodbye to Yorick, he acknowledges her on his hind legs, his most human, or at least anthropomorphic, before going down at a swift run to fight alongside his companions. So we see that Lyra was alone. That ending to this chapter will be modified uh, in an important way by the ending of the final chapter in the book. But to look for a moment at Yorick's loyalty and hers, it suggests that, in another sense, they are still connected, even when physically apart, as both are going into danger, pursuing those whom they feel responsible for, Yorick his subjects, Lyra, her friend Roger, and, as we'll learn, both do persevere, though not all of those that they are responsible for will necessarily survive. Now, this moment of farewell is also interesting since Lyra hasn't really had a chance to say goodbye to most of the people that she's met along the way. I don't think that we really see much of a goodbye scene for anyone since the master of Jordan. Though I think we're told that she did say goodbye to Ma Costa before setting out with the Egyptians to head north. And that goodbye or farewell motif will be so crucial in the third book in the series. That wraps up chapter 22, Betrayal, and brings us to our considerations of the imaginary video game adaptation of The Golden Compass. One last time, uh, or rather, uh, one next to last time here. For recess, this time we've got the next to final boss battle. Classic component of most video games is to give you a fight that seems like it must be the final boss, but of course there will be one even after that. Um, in this case it's the, uh, the fight with the Zeppelin here, which seems like a culminating battle, but uh, will be followed up by uh, the largely uh, demon-centric battle with uh, Lord Asriel and his demons. Now, this one against the Zeppelin will emphasize strategic formations and courage in the face of a terrifying onslaught, and the dominant image, of course, will be fire. And so here you're acting on Yorick's orders, placing the bears around Lyra and the fire hurler to defend and huddle 
against the witches, timing your jumps to drag them down. And then shortly the zeppelin comes into range. You'll have to take your shot at fire hurling, first loading the projectile, aiming and adjusting the angle and the power of the launch, all the while hunkering down when the Gatling gun counterattacks. But all that is also in the context of the cold itself as a foe. Maybe we should have integrated this earlier into the gameplay, but we're told here that the wind and the jagged peaks of the landscape are likened to swords so that they would have to be uh, dealing some sort of damage to Lyra, either for her health or her stamina, or her energy, her power, however we want to represent that. Now, we'd also want to get the chance to play out Lyra's vision of the parade of bears up into the starry city. I like to imagine them building that city, something like the surreal cheeriness of a Katamari Damachi level. And crossing the bridge will also be one of the last gameplay feats, more of a platforming rather than a strategy battle. And this one you'll accomplish with Lyra, but it'll only be possible with help from Pan holding on to her on the far side of the leap. That holding on uh, element reminiscent of the game's eco and shadow of the Colossus. But again, pulling from such disparate influences as these will probably not make for a truly coherent gameplay experience. So, Anyway, we can imagine it however we like for now, and maybe think of it as something at once impossibly lucky and inevitable as if it were fated when Lyra does cross the bridge, collapsing behind her, and looks back to wave goodbye to Yorick. We'll have one more crack at the imaginary video game next time, probably a short one, since it's a long, or, well, anyway, a longer chapter with lots in it. Um, till then, thanks for listening.